coming up on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. How does somebody create a really solid container for healing for somebody who's experienced sexual violence? I think the first thing that comes to mind is that boundaries are really important. Sexual violence is a boundary violation. And this can be confusing to do in an arena where we're doing boundary expanding work. And boundaries are things like time boundaries. You know, obviously, I'm really big on boundaries around touch. I think consent is really important with people who are survivors. It's also, I think, an important thing to remember that many people who are survivors of of sexual violence have been intoxicated when they were assaulted. And so there can be a big trigger around being intoxicated and unable to control their experience. So lots of like, do you and your body fully consent to this medicine? Talking in depth about what touch may occur before the session, just tracking all this, like you can just build so much relationship before you go into that. Welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast, a weekly conversation series with leaders in psychedelic culture, designed for therapists, healers, retreat leaders, and passionate enthusiasts, presented by Maya and hosted by me, Eamon Armstrong. Welcome back to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. I'm your host, Eamon Armstrong. Psychedelic medicine is a powerful tool that can support the healing of survivors of sexual violence. However, the conditions of psychedelic therapy, both above and below ground, can also create trauma for those looking to heal. Laura Northrup, a somatic psychotherapist, author, and podcaster, is our guest for a two-part series on healing sexual violence with psychedelics and how to protect those seeking healing. In part one, our conversation begins with addressing the issue of sexual violence in the psychedelic community. Laura shares resources on becoming truly trauma-informed and how practitioners can create a safe space during a psychedelic experience, including creating appropriate boundaries. We go over how to support someone if you are not professionally trauma-informed and how to find a practitioner who is. We end with a discussion about supporting bystanders of sexual violence. Laura is an author, educator, somatic psychotherapist, and podcaster. She is the host and creator of the podcast Inside Eyes, an audio series about people using entheogens and psychedelics to heal from sexual trauma. Her work focuses on defining sexual violence through a spiritual and politicized lens, mentoring healing practitioners in creating a meaningful path and supporting the spiritual integrity of our collective humanity. This show discusses sexual violence, so please go slow and take care of yourself. And now, here is... Laura Northrop. Do you have any kind of like ritual or energy clearing kind of thing you do before being on a podcast? No, I should. I, it's mostly about like routines, like eating something really tasty and brushing my teeth and having my water. And sometimes I pull a card for the podcast. That's a nice ritual. Do you want to pull a card? I mean, I could. Do you want us to pull a tarot card and see what's yeah, going to happen? Yeah, that would be awesome. Okay, that's, hold on That's a exactly what we need. Let me grab yeah. the cards. Great. Okay. I'm going to just shuffle real quick. Okay. Pulling a card for our show. Ooh. The card that I pulled is the Six of Swords. And in this deck, it's also called Science. And I will... 
read to you. We have never pulled this card before. Here's what it looks like. Keywords, Mercury and Aquarius, ability to analyze, to unify ideas, all encompassing vision, all embracing understanding, objectivity. Mercury is one of the greatest gifts for Aquarius. Mercury's ability to analyze brings clarity to perspectives on the future. The perceptions are not only seen and recognized, but can also be effectively communicated now. The most varied ideas and visions meet at one central point. This allows for a new, all-encompassing vision of things which bring the rose of realization into bloom. The rose and cross in the center of the painting symbolize the secret of scientific truth, which repeatedly forces us to break away from outdated models and ways of thinking. This does not in any way confine itself to the world of science. Newly gained realizations also serve to demolish old ruts in personal areas and relationships. The changes that are now necessary should be communicated in such a way that others can hear, understand, and accept them. Wow. Well, I think that that's a really positive card for our interview. Yeah, I mean, no pressure. We're just going to revolutionize a paradigm in this moment. Great. I'm I'm here for it. I, I am here for it. And and honestly, based on listening to your your podcast and and you on other podcasts, I feel like you are super here for it. And we need that. So, with that wonderful preamble, Laura, welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. It's really an honor to speak to you today. Thank you for having me, Amen. I'm excited to be here. So, just before we started this podcast, we had a lovely time getting to know each other and and we were speaking a bit about how this is sensitive material and it's very difficult to talk about. It's something that people don't want to get wrong and that can lead to people not speaking about it, which I think is one of the worst things we can do as a community is to not speak about sexual trauma, uh, sexual trauma in people's personal lives that they're going to psychedelic medicine to heal and work with, and then the sexual trauma that could indeed happen within a container of psychedelic healing. But talk about it we must, and this is something that you've been doing for a while, including a beautiful 16-part series um, called Inside Eyes that you produced in 2019. And, and of course, this Horizons talk, which we'll talk about as well today. So you've been really speaking publicly about this. Just as a way of starting the conversation, why do you feel that in this moment in the psychedelic renaissance, it's so important to be sounding the alarm around sexual issues within psychedelic healing? So what I would say is that it's, I feel like this is something we should have been sounding the alarm on. And I think people in who are doing like anti-violence work have been sounding the alarm on this since, I mean, probably since the beginning of time, right? Like I'm sure this is like a hundred thousand years ago, people were, I'm sure, kind of sounding the alarm on violence. So this is something that I've been um, talking about and doing work around sexual violence for, I mean, close to 20 years. But I think it's what is actually happening. The way I would like kind of reframe that is I think more people are more willing to have the conversation. And I think that that comes from some people being very, very courageous and speaking up publicly and really bringing it into the light. I think it also comes from people having an anxiety, you know, an anxiety and a responsibility that's sending them into a place of as psychedelic medicine is sort of blowing up and on the brink of becoming far more accessible that we just have to talk about this, that that there's such high rates of sexual abuse happening. And so I think some people feel a responsibility as they start to realize like, oh, this is actually going to keep happening. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to mean that there are many people who are out there 
getting excited about using psychedelics for healing, listening to podcasts like this one, who have a risk of actually being abused and traumatized by the people who they're going to go to for healing. And something that I've learned from you is that people who've experienced sexual trauma, particularly childhood sexual trauma, are actually more likely to experience it again, in a psychedelic container. So we're actually going to be having two conversations today. And I think that they're extraordinarily intertwined, which is first, psychedelic healing for sexual trauma and how a practitioner can be properly trauma-informed for someone with sexual trauma and be able to support them. And then the second part is around the sexual abuse that's happening within psychedelic healing itself and how this population that's already very vulnerable may become more vulnerable in the psychedelic space. And so by the end of the second part, hopefully we'll have some community responses, some ways that we can change this paradigm. And so I think that this podcast is going to be extraordinarily helpful for practitioners because working with survivors of sexual trauma is a delicate process and requires a lot of training. And knowing ourselves as practitioners also requires a lot of work so that we are not causing harm ourselves. So that's the landscape of where we've decided to go today. And I really appreciate you taking the time for what will be our first ever two-part series on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. So how does that sound to you? Sounds great. I mean, I'm like, sounds great. Let's talk about some really depressing stuff. No, it sounds beautiful. I think this is really important for people to be learning about both practitioners and people who are interested in in accessing these kinds of medicines for their own healing. And of course, for many people that they walk both paths, they are practitioners and they also are people who seek healing and, and possibly seek it around sexual trauma. So definitely game for the conversation. Wonderful. Well, Laura, first let's talk about you because you have worked in this field for a long time. You've worked in transformative justice. You are a psychotherapist. Recently gave an incredible talk at Horizons. It was very impactful for a lot of people. Even though it was just 10 minutes long, it caused some waves. Where would you like to start? With <laughs> That's a lazy podcaster thing to do. <laughs> um, oh my gosh, thank you for acknowledging that, that that's a lazy podcaster thing because everybody does it. They're like, wait, what else do you want to say? I actually do have a place that I could start, which is just that I do think something that's really important about my work for people to understand and it sometimes gets a little lost is that I'm really coming to talking about sexual trauma from a very political and spiritual place. And I I really want people to be able to think about the larger political impact of there being such a massive epidemic of sexual violence that people don't get like necessarily adequate healing around. So there's all these people in the world who are either, I mean, all of us are either have been sexually abused, are afraid of being sexually abused, or love people who have been sexually abused. And for anybody who has had a child or a a sibling or a family member, a parent, a partner who has experienced sexual trauma, you know that it can be really complicated and, and really painful around, there can be a lot of relational wounds. So we're all in some way in the soup of violence that is related to sexuality. And then that creates a huge level of disempowerment in the world, not believing survivors and limiting sort of not people, people not having like adequate access to care to heal continues to perpetuate a level of disempowerment. So there's a the whole political piece that I, I think is really important to understand. And, and I talk about this in my podcast as well, the piece about how sexual violence is used in war. It was used in the Native American genocide and has continued to be used. It is used in prison systems. And 
it's used in all these different arenas. And, and even though nobody is saying like, hey, go do this thing to these people, the fact that they're doing it and there's no repercussions and there's not a lot of like trying to prevent it, it in a way is allowing it is, you know, justifying it. And then the spiritual piece, like what happens to a person spiritually who experiences sexual violence? And I think we could also ask the question, would be an interesting question to talk about is like, what happens to the community spiritually and what happens to the person who is causing that harm spiritually? So that's something that those are some big, deep questions that I have that a lot of times I think people are like excited about my work. And I mean, it's easy to kind of lose the political piece, but also it's easy to go straight to like, okay, how can we just like make this problem go away? And I'm like, we got to understand where this problem came from in order to in order to solve it and like what why we are unconsciously engaged in maintaining it. Well, this is part of why I'm happy we've decided to do two full episodes on this matter because I think the philosophical and spiritual piece is extraordinarily important. And a lot of the experience of the quote mystical experience of psychedelics is a deeply philosophical experience. So if someone has been through childhood sexual abuse and they've dissociated and disconnected from certain parts of themselves, that homecoming of those parts is a deeply spiritual experience. And practitioners should know that. You know, We use the expression trauma-informed, and I know that that's, in some cases, can be kind of a weaker uh, declaration than what we're really looking for here. But if practitioners understand the deeply spiritual nature of the homecoming of an exiled part of oneself, that would make them a much better practitioner for that particular population and much more capable of seeing some of the predictable patterns that might obscure or block that homecoming. So this thing about training, I think, is also really important. So we're going to talk about the philosophical piece, we'll talk about the political piece, but also just like the training. Maybe we can talk a bit about the trainings that you've had that have allowed you to be trauma-informed or maybe trauma-informed plus. I'm not sure what we'll end up calling it, but to be properly aware of some of the patterns that happen with victims of sexual abuse. What are some of the trainings that you have done and that you'd recommend other practitioners to be doing as a foundation? Yeah, so I'm trained in sensory motor psychotherapy for the treatment of trauma, which is like an involved year-long training that I was trained by Janina Fisher, who is, she's in the upper echelons. She's she's a really, really, really skilled trainer, very, very knowledgeable. So that is my primary larger training in trauma. I also have a, some, a degree in somatic psychology, which is very trauma-informed degree. But basically, I'm mostly approaching my trauma lens coming from a somatic place. And then I also did a year-long training with Donald Kalshed, who is a union analyst that has a whole kind of frame of thinking about trauma from a spiritual lens. My own spiritual work, honestly, my own medicine work has really informed a lot of this as well. One thing that I know for people who do not become therapists, sometimes that people don't know that this is a part of becoming a psychotherapist. So what to, in order to get a license you have to be one-on-one individually supervised for like basically a minimum of three years. A lot of people end up going longer where every single week you are discussing your cases in depth with someone who's a more senior clinician. I have just been blessed to work with people who are really, really knowledgeable about trauma from a lot of different lenses. And so I would say that's maybe more where I have been informed by thinking about trauma from a relational lens is from the people I've worked with there. So something that has come up on 
your podcast and on the podcast that you did, the Plant Medicine Podcast, is this idea of trauma-informed being something, an expression that we talk about within the community of psychedelic healing, that we want trauma-informed spaces and we want trauma-informed people. And that can be a somewhat amorphous term like is trauma informed that you read Bessel van der Kolk's book Body Keeps the Score and, and now you are you are trauma informed you know or does it mean having a specific training you've mentioned that you've had wonderful mentorship and that you've been trained in certain modalities for a practitioner who's listening right now just out the gate are there any specific trainings or any specific ways of being trauma informed that is a more comprehensive kind of foundation that you're aware of right now that people could go check out yeah, I mean, and this is maybe not going to be the most popular opinion because I know people are like, I just want to do the work or I want to get the information quickly. I would say doing some kind of longer training, like it might be an entire year-long training on working with trauma and also getting consultation. And what I mean by consultation for anybody who's maybe in the underground or a coach or something where that's not sort of like a built-in requirement to get a license or to upkeep your license as well, but to actually take the cases that you're working with and each week spend a solid hour talking about them to another person where it's not you both talking about your cases, but really you talking to that person. And then this would be for you know newer clinicians. And as we progress and become like in the mid parts of our careers and more senior clinicians, we still need to be getting regular consultations. So if you're not talking to other clinicians or other guides about the work that you're doing in a really in-depth way that's vulnerable, where you're kind of looking at where you've gone wrong, where you could be doing better, then I would definitely recommend starting that. The other thing that I always tell people, you know, a lot of people ask me like, but where can you get the psychedelic trauma-informed training? And I'm like, it doesn't need to be with a psychedelic informed trainer. Like somatic therapy is so psychedelic. It really is. And a lot of what we're doing in medicine work is somatic work. It's a lot of helping people get into their bodies. It's a lot of people actually using their bodies to start processing feelings, you know, traumatic events. And so if you are getting training that's somatic, you inherently are getting skills to work in a, in a psychedelic way. And also Janina Fisher is alive and well and offering trainings. She is incredible, so intelligent. I recommend everybody to get trained with her. I mean, like at some point she's going to retire. So if you listen to this podcast 10 years later, you know, I don't know, but, but she's really lovely. Well, I love this as kind of a foundation so that practitioners who are listening to this podcast sort of have some way of looking at it and places to look if they're like, oh wow, I don't feel informed with this at all. So let's switch gears and let's talk about why psychedelic assisted therapy, psychedelic healing is potentially particularly helpful for victims of sexual abuse. There's a reason why many people who've suffered trauma writ large are going to psychedelic medicine. I'm aware that there isn't really any research that specifically has looked at survivors of sexual trauma and psychedelics, but there's a lot on PTSD generally. So let's talk just a bit about why people who are survivors of sexual abuse might be looking for psychedelics and why psychedelics are potentially a very valuable tool in the toolkit of, of a healer. Yeah, well, so I'll start with a little disclaimer, which is, yes, this is this is like anecdotal. This is an opinion that I have. It's not necessarily something that's like backed up by research, but I do feel that psychedelics can really help people, some people, not everybody, but can possibly be a great tool for people who have experienced sexual violence. 
So starting with that part of the question where you asked, like, why are people who have experienced sexual violence going towards psychedelics? I think a lot of people who have experienced sexual violence go to lots of therapy, do tons of meditation, try out meds, like just do so many different things, take all these classes and find that there is this place where they just cannot surpass it. Like they just cannot stop being triggered. They just cannot stop, you know, maybe engaging with substances in a way that they're concerned about or pushing people away. It's really hard for a lot of people with sexual trauma. It really impacts the ability to be close to other people. So one thing about sexual violence is it's a it's a relational trauma. It's not like getting into a car accident where like, for example, if you swerved on the road and hit a tree and, and nobody hit you in a car, like you're not necessarily going to have the same feeling of like human beings are dangerous. A human being did this thing to me. So there can be a lot of issues with that. So I think this is one of the reasons is people are just desperate to heal. And we can get more into later how that also leads to people ending up in situations where they maybe aren't able to be as discerning about a guide out of like desperation. And then the piece that you were bringing up about the mystical experience, I think this is a really key thing with sexual trauma. There, I really think about like, well, I'll just pause and say like, the question of what is healing is an eternal question. And I think it's a question that healing practitioners are always kind of in our most difficult cases, sitting there and going, what's actually going to help? Like, I don't know in this moment, you know, it's like, will it be this, this, this? But one kind of like tenant that I hold to is that feelings need to be felt. They need to be expressed and that's two different things. And they need to be witnessed or understood and sort of brought back into a cohesive sense of self. And I also think that feelings are a somatic experience. So the body is a part of that too. So for example people who experience sexual violence are made to feel some pretty intense feelings. And a classic one is to be made to feel terrified. And that's just too much. It's too much to hold. It's too much spiritually. I mean, to be in this, the place of perhaps before the violence occurred, feeling, even if you weren't super trusting, just feeling some sense of trust in humanity. And then after the violence, being confronted with like, oh, wow, human beings can be horrendous. And it's a, it's a spiritual wound to, to be confronted with that level of just how far humans can go in their, in our very, very, very bad behavior. So if I think about like, for example, this terror, that's usually what happens is that people are so overwhelmed by it that they dissociate away from it. And when somebody does therapy, they may not be able to break through and actually process it all the way. You know, another thing is that when we do psychedelic medicine work, somebody is spending hours and hours and hours with the medicine. And it's very rare. We don't do non-psychedelic work where we're like, hey, let's just do an eight-hour session. And, and that too, like, I don't know if you just didn't. I mean, this is one of the things that's interesting with the trials is like, people actually are getting eight hours of therapy where they got a placebo. And it's, it's a lot can happen in eight hours. I mean, I'm sure having an eight-hour session probably increases the intimacy and the depth someone can go. But so basically, when people are struggling with processing their feelings and they use a, a psychedelic or an entheogen, I do think that it can potentially open people up for... And I could go way deep on this about why I think that is, but to not just feel the feeling, but express the feeling 
and express and feel it to the depth that it actually needs to be expressed and felt. So not just I'm sad, not just I'm a little frightened, but like I am or I was terrified beyond reason. Processing that and then, I mean, with the the experience in the moment, but also in some kind of therapeutic context or in community, you know, wherever it may be, having that experience and being able to have it be like fully witnessed by yourself, by the medicine, by a guide, again, community, and being able to integrate it back in. Like, wow, that was really a part of my experience that I can now be conscious to, as opposed to having to push away because it was too overwhelming. Yeah, it's... There's some of this reminds me of like parts work too, where it's not just the being witnessed by community, it's parts of yourself witnessing other parts of yourself. You know, a, a lot of times when we have traumatic experiences, there's this kind of separation of self, dissociation, and kind of taking a part of yourself and hiding it away. And then bringing that self back is really painful. And I think certain psychedelic experiences, in fact, because of the bells and whistles, actually makes that a a bit more of a, a tenable experience. So like, for example, ketamine has a dissociative quality to it that can actually make it a little gentler to bring that back. Or ayahuasca with the MAO inhibitor floods your brain with serotonin. There's, it can be a little bit of a gentler thing, or say MDMA, obviously very well known as being a kind of gentler way of connecting with a part that may, you may be too triggered to even touch. It makes me think of like, if you have like a sports injury and you're getting a massage, the masseuse can't just like stick their thumb right on this spot because you'll just freak out. And but you know, there's a there's a process of approaching it slowly, and that these psychedelic medicines also kind of like lubricate the approach of this kind of exiled or disembodied part of yourself that can then come back in. And I think that there's something about the gentleness of the quality of being held by the medicine and being held by a really a really wise practitioner, whether that's a shaman in, in a ceremonial context or whether that's someone who's really done the work over a long period of time that can support and heal you. So the, the combination of the medicine creating safety and the practitioner creating safety is so very important. And so, yeah, I think it'd be good to talk a bit about how the practitioner can create safety for that experience. Yeah, well, before I answer that question, you know, something you just said that I, I, I'm like, I'm always wanting us to talk more about this. I have all these questions like how much the society we live in and the way that the dominant culture sort of prescribes what is allowable impacts the kind of healing we can do without a psychedelic and then also impacts the kind of healing we can do with one. So for example, somatic therapy, so much about it is a lot of the the sort of what I would call like sequencing trauma where it's like you're sobbing or you're shaking that's all work that somatic therapists are, are trained to do without the assistance of a psychedelic. But you know, I can just say as a practitioner, it's really hard to get people to do that. It's really hard. And, and one of the reasons it's hard is because it's, you know, like, quote, weird to move your body around in a way that's not controlled, or it's weird to be that vulnerable in front of someone. And I do think that the way that we think about like, quote, drugs or the way that the drug war has sort of conditioned us to, to see this is an arena where you are allowed to be messy or allowed to be sort of fallen apart in some way. It, I think all of this makes it so that it's like, yeah, people are like, I want to go do psychedelic medicine so I can like shake and cry and freak out and puke and like, you know, really process my stuff. And a lot of that, I'm like, I, I wonder how much of that we would actually be able to access if we were 
really truly living in a way that was like spiritually grounded and allowed the full expression of humanity without this sort of having to section it off. Like this is what you do in this other realm. This is where that's okay. There's a scientific corollary to that, which is the default mode network stuff, right? So our default mode network is entirely conditioned by our society. So really, like on the level of biology, as we understand it at this point with psychedelics, it's exactly what you're saying. We have been conditioned to not permit our bodies to naturally do things they want to do. For example, escaping gazelle is going to shake. Humans need to shake out their trauma, right? That's what our bodies are supposed to do, but it's this pesky kind of like ego default mode network societal conditioning that says, no, I must stay fully straight and I must not move my wiggly body. I think exactly what you're saying is, is the case and backed up by biology is that not only do we conceptually imagine that in the container of a psychedelic we get to wiggle, but the way that our brains have formed to not wiggle is shifted by the medicine itself. Yeah, agreed, agreed. So I was talking about how the medicine creates safety. And we're just talking about now this you know, default mode network or this kind of societal norms and inhibitions are let down. And that's an environment where things can happen. And we use this expression container a lot when we talk about psychedelic healing. That a container is created where someone can really experience and emote and live and feel. You're talking about these big feelings that need to be felt and witnessed. So we know that the medicines are creating that safety. And of course, set and setting the practitioner is an extraordinarily important part of that. So I'd love to talk a bit about how practitioners can explicitly help victims of sexual trauma feel safe to experience, to cry, to be full of rage, and, and to assist along with that medicine, that container of safety. Yeah, this is such a good question. I, I'm also compelled to say every time someone says the word container, I have a picture of Tupperware in my mind. Like it just never goes away. And I mean, as somebody who's like deep up in the somatics world, like, oh my gosh, the, the, the term container, anyway, just always just Tupperware in my mind. So yeah, so like how does somebody create a really solid container for healing for somebody who's experienced sexual violence? I think the first thing that comes to mind is that boundaries are really important. Sexual violence is a boundary violation. And this can be confusing to do in an arena where we're doing boundary expanding work. And boundaries are things like time boundaries, boundaries like, oh, here's a great one. In the world of therapy, we sometimes call this the frame. But plenty of people come to this type of work and they just want to jump in and do the biggest journey they can and they don't want to do it a ton of prep. And as the practitioner, sometimes you need to be protecting your client more than they are maybe maybe they're not so in touch. Maybe they're a little dissociated from how much protection and safety they need. So I think we can always go slow. We can always go more intense. You can always do a bigger journey, but you can't press an eject button on a journey and you can't like call up customer service and be like, I didn't like this part. <laughs> Let's get out of this, you know? So I think low and slow, lots of preparation, and then, yeah, boundaries around things like, you know, obviously I'm really big on boundaries around touch. I think consent is really important with people who are survivors. It's also, I think, an important thing to remember that many people who are survivors of, of sexual violence have been intoxicated when they were assaulted. And so there can be a big trigger around being intoxicated and unable to control their experience. So lots of like, do you and your body fully consent to this medicine? 
talking in depth about what touch may occur before the session. People keep asking me like, how can you prep somebody around touch? And if you are going to use touch in a psychedelic space, you might want to try doing that before there's psychedelic medicine involved when the person is more present and actually like try out what does it feel like to to hold hands in this moment do you feel like you can say no you know just just tracking all this like you can just build so much relationship before you go into that i will say obviously some of this advice is really complicated because there's a lot of different kinds of medicine work and there's a lot of different kinds of contexts people do it in so some people just do ceremonies where it's like they have a group ceremony and people sign up and they go and other people are doing work where they're actually like incorporating psychotherapy into it. And it is involved long-term psychotherapy work with a psychedelic and I'm a ketamine assisted psychotherapist. So like I, I do that, that's more the kind of work that I do. But yeah, so it's really, really complicated. And I think like really prioritizing safety, really prioritizing boundaries and you, you can't be careful enough And even when, I was talking to someone about this just the other day, even when you're super, super careful, everyone's consenting, it's all like everybody's on board, there can still be stuff that happens where it's like somebody will be under the influence of the medicine and be like, I didn't know how to say no to this, but I didn't like it. And that's okay. Like sometimes that that happens, but that's even when you've done it all, when you've crossed every T and dotted every I around consent. This is somewhat of a similar question, but I understand from your work that there are, in fact, some specific characteristics of sexual trauma survivors, particularly survivors of child sexual abuse. And so when a practitioner is working with members of this very vulnerable population, there are certain predictable patterns that can happen, a lot to do with boundaries, as you've just mentioned. So what are some of the things to be aware of? What are some of the behaviors that you might experience from someone who has had particularly, I think, in this case, we're talking about child sexual abuse, but sexual abuse broadly, what are some of the characteristics that that a practitioner should be aware of and how might they manage that? Sure, yeah. And I'll add in, you know, that training question, like I answered the question about being just trauma-informed, but if you want to work in a psychological manner, so not just you're running a, a ceremony or you're doing just one guided journey for somebody, but you're actually working with them psychologically and they're a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, you should most definitely get training on that. Once you engage in a world where you're inviting a lot of psychological work, it can get really tricky and complicated. So for example, testing boundaries. One of the ways that people who have had their boundaries crossed navigate boundaries is they can not say no, even when they know it's a no. They can be dissociated from even knowing it's a no. And sometimes they can even invite a little bit of boundary testing, like, oh, here's an opportunity, therapist. Will you cross this boundary? And they can be doing this completely unconsciously. And I think of it kind of like trying to find out how safe someone is by finding out how dangerous they are. So even though as the guide or the therapist, you might be like, oh, well, my client asked me to go out to dinner next week and and I wouldn't normally do that, but they asked, so it's okay. It's your job as the practitioner to say no. And even if the person you're working with it feels a little put off or disappointed, some part of them inside just got the information that you're safer than somebody who would agree to a, a dual relationship or crossing boundaries. And then with projections, I, I talk a lot about... So there's this really great book. It's called um, 
Treating the Adult Survivor of Childhood Sexual Abuse, a Psychoanalytic Perspective. And it's by um, Mary Gail Frawley's and somebody Davies. I'm forgetting her name. But that book is, I super recommend if you're going to work with people who are survivors of childhood sexual abuse, that you read the whole thing cover to cover. It's really good. But they also talk very in-depth about these, what are called transference, counter-transference dynamics. And just to break that down really simply for people, it's just ways that people start to enact their trauma where you take on the role of the trauma in the therapeutic relationship. So for example, two roles that can happen are one person is acting out like the abuser and one person is acting out like the victim. And this is like a, I'm talking about not necessarily that the therapy and the therapist and the client would act this out by actually being abusive and actually being victimized, but that they would act it out sort of symbolically. Maybe there's a little something where it's starting to feel like this is what's going on. And if you are really you know, psychologically trained, this would be a place where you can start actually talking about it and un- unraveling it. And actually, there can be a lot of healing coming from taking these roles and really exploring them. If you're not very psychologically trained, you may just end up being like, why do I always feel like I'm the perpetrator with this person? Or why do I always feel like my boundaries are being pushed and I'm being victimized with this person? And then, of course, in really extreme cases, people can get into these dynamics where they step into being the abuser to the point that they abuse the people they're working with, which is obviously terrible. And we'll talk more about that later. But there could just be these very, very strong psychological pulls into dynamics that are so much bigger than just you and that person. It's like, these are the like large kind of very confusing dynamics of violence. So let's say that you're a practitioner, similar to yourself, you're doing psychedelic-assisted therapy, say with ketamine. You start working with someone, and I can imagine that sometimes some of this information doesn't come out right away. So you're, you're working with someone, and you begin to become aware that they've suffered some significant childhood sexual abuse. And you recognize that you're actually not really the most qualified practitioner to help them. This seems like a pretty difficult moment that requires a lot of humility and care to then understand how to best support that person. You've developed a relationships, you don't want to abandon them, but at the same time, maybe there's someone better to work with. How does someone navigate that moment? If you're working with someone, or, if, or even if you haven't established a relationship, someone comes to you. If you don't feel fully trauma-informed, what's the appropriate professional thing to do in that case? Yeah, so I would definitely recommend for anyone in that situation to get consultation very specifically on the case. Because basically, when someone finally does come forward with something, and maybe it was really vulnerable to share it, and then the practitioner's like, I can't work with you, it can feel, yeah, abandoning. It can feel like, oh gosh, I'm never going to tell anyone again. So I would definitely recommend getting lots of consultation on how to handle it. But you know, I think I could see just like as like a rough sort of estimate of what I would say is something like, I wouldn't necessarily say at that moment. I would probably say the next session or following session. I've really been sitting with this. I am not actually trained enough to support you in this. So what I would really like to do is really work at helping you get some really good care and then actually do that. And really good care and support could mean that you actually have gotten consent from them to talk to another practitioner talk to that practitioner, sort of describe the case, made sure that person had some space and time and actually help them transition to someone else. 
And sometimes people even do warm handoffs where they will like maybe have a practitioner come into a session just to meet the next person. Also, you can do an overlap thing. So if you're going to be ending with the person you were working with, maybe they've started working with a new person and they're processing whether that feels like a right fit with you and you're slowly sending them off as making sure they've got someone. I think that being available to consult. So in a therapy context, we sign releases of information and we actually like consult with the other clinician and actually talk pretty openly about the case. But yeah, basically just like really compassionately letting that person know that you can't work with them, but that you do really care about them. And it's not about rejecting them. And you're actually going to even come more forward and help them find the care that they need. So much of what we're discussing involves mentorship and support of others as a practitioner. And I can imagine that particularly in the realm of psychedelic-assisted therapy, especially in the gray market, that finding those mentors and finding that support may be challenging for practitioners. Um, I know we've talked about this in the context of trainings. Where do we go? How do we find someone that we could potentially assist that that person with a new practitioner that would work for them. How does a practitioner find these kinds of colleagues and mentors? Where would you recommend looking? Yeah, well, this is a really good question because a lot of people are like, I want to do this work and maybe they don't actually have a community they're embedded in, but they start practicing. And it's very, very complicated. So if Because if you got trained by people, then you probably know people. And I would say that's part of how you're getting into a community where you are connected to people who are more knowledgeable, who can guide you. But certainly there are some people who are just like stepping into this work without a lot of training. So one thing I will say is if you do not have like really strong consultation or you don't have people you trust to either supervise your work when you're early on or at least lay some eyes on it, I would just really invite you to question whether it's a good idea to be practicing yet. Because this is not work that we do alone. We do this work in community. And a lot of people, I don't think, talk about that. That like practitioners, we're very, very connected. I mean, I talk to practitioners all the time about my work, about their work. And that's a really important part of how I make sure my work's okay. So if you're not in any community, even though you might have the place and the medicine and someone who wants to do it with you, there's a whole kind of world of what else you need that's maybe might seem invisible if you haven't accessed it yet. So that piece, but in terms of how to find community in a world where it's illegal and people don't necessarily come forward and say what they do, I think getting connected with psychedelic societies, going to conferences, going to some trainings that are maybe above ground so that you can actually like openly meet people. I mean, all the ways that people build community. And then this other piece, I never know how to say this part because I want to say like, and then really find people you really trust. But if you have a lot of trauma, you might have a hard time assessing if someone's really trustworthy. And even if you don't have a lot of trauma, or if you're generally really good at that, as evidenced by many call-outs in our world, there can be people who are in leadership that are not safe to work with. And it can just get really, really complicated kind of how to find people who you think are really good. I want to like tell people to just trust their guts on it and like, Also, if somebody, I think there's a balance of do other people really respect this clinician? Do you get a good feeling about it? And also to be mindful that sometimes people confuse respect and trust with idealization and power. So just because somebody has a really powerful position doesn't mean you should trust them. Just because other people idealize them doesn't mean you should trust them. 
being like a trustworthy, honest clinician that can guide somebody, that could be somebody who is definitely not in the public eye, not somebody who's really... I mean, some of the most... I didn't even mention when I said some of the people who I've who have trained me and like my, my consult, consultants and stuff... There's no point in even mentioning their names because you know they're not out here on podcasts. They're not somebody who you're going to go find in a training. They're just people who do this work really well. Are you available for people to reach out to you? You've just mentioned that you have these connections with people that you consult with. You seem to be very knowledgeable on this subject and would be able to direct people. Can people reach out to you directly if they're practitioners and they're looking for support in this in this realm? Well, this will probably will not come as a surprise, but... I'm I'm a little overwhelmed by the level of reaching out that is happening. I don't know if we mentioned it. I just released a book. Like I'm kind of I'm kind of at my max. My practice is very full. But what I will say is that people do reach out to me to provide trainings. And I ha- have done a lot of teaching and guest lecturing and training and I really enjoy it. I'm kind of in the market to actually do something that's more involved at this point. Like a a lot a lot of people want like an hour long training or a 90 minute training or maybe like max three hours, which is really beautiful. But if people are interested and, and want to reach out to me and you're connected in this way, I'm much more interested in doing a more in-depth training because I really want to help people actually gain the actual skills that they are going to use as opposed to just kind of talk about the skills where they can't practice them and they can't go into their work, use it, come back into the class like later, kind of continued over time, get to discuss it and, and, and build their capacity. Well, you've just released a book, which we're going to talk about at the very end of the podcast. So it seems like maybe you've just finished a big project. So maybe launching an entire training series, even while you're super busy, maybe that's the next step. And and if so, let us help you promote that because it's really important what you're sharing. Part of why I'm bringing this up is that I can just imagine so many people listening to this who are like, yes, yes, I need this. Where do I go? And especially, I think one of the things with psychedelic-assisted therapy is that a lot of people who are interested in psychedelic-assisted therapy are folks who are not necessarily particularly satisfied with the existing Western medical model, who, who really want to help, who've been transformed by psychedelics themselves, and who are not interested in doing some of these like really traditional medical long educational programs, which has its own problem and maybe as we're going to get into later in the podcast maybe is one of the influencing factors of the fact that sometimes there's folks who are not properly trained who are in these roles but there are you know there's a lot of people who are creating like from a patchwork of different kinds of trainings versus like you know a long credential process with like a clinical component with like an official mentor for for many years so i think that having since people are going about this with these sort of patchwork trainings particularly in the gray market it's good to have good trainings out there if you want to launch one maybe this is a good time to consider that no i've i've definitely really thought a lot about it and i have like a whole a whole kind of like world of thinking going on about that and and I hope that people will get interested in it. You know, I mean, like meaning literally, like I hope pro, pro training programs that are hosting these might be interested in doing something like a collaboration because I think it is really important. And I think it's also a risk, as we were talking about before coming um, into this interview. This is really hard stuff to talk about, and I think a lot of people are afraid to sort of like stand up and say, "Okay, here's the training. Here's the training that's going to be offered," because like. What if it isn't good enough? Or what if later you realize there's things in it that you know you want to take back or that you don't feel totally kind of hit the mark? And 
I think some of our fears of making mistakes can cloud actually taking a step forward. Mm, Oh, that's so true. And it's so true on the subject matter that we're going to transition into shortly, which is like, how do we in community talk about harm that has been done? Which is like, I don't want to say the wrong thing, so I don't want to say anything. And not saying anything is, is often the wrong thing, you know, so... We're about to transition into part two. Have we missed any major points around working with victims of, of sexual abuse as a practitioner? I know it's a vast subject and the, people really do need to do these trainings, but for the purpose of this podcast, do you see any glaring, any glaring holes in, in kind of the general landscape that, that our listeners should be aware of before we move on? You know, I think maybe one of the only other things I would mention is that if anyone who wants to specialize in this work, obviously I encourage everyone to get all the training and everything. And sometimes I feel like we don't have a choice of whether or not we're going to specialize within this work because sexual violence is so common. And also there's a lot of things that are sexual violence that we don't necessarily think of as sexual violence. So like, for example, bullying when you're a kid, lots of people will say they were bullied And then when you really get into what happened, they were being sexually harassed by their peers. I think a lot of the violence that queer and trans people face is a type of sexual violence. So I think like when we look at sexual violence from a really broad lens, it's just, I mean, it's so prevalent and I don't think we get to choose to sort of not ever work with it. So I I think even if you're like, okay, this isn't really my specialty, it's still good to get some extra training in it. Yeah. And there's so many, I mean, we didn't, we didn't even touch on just like, like if you're a bystander to violence, what that means, like all the people who we've worked with or may work with in the future where their children were sexually abused and they're living with the impact of being a parent uh, who has suffered in terms of not protecting their child or protecting them and it not being enough. Like I said, I get asked all the time for referrals that are for a therapist who can skillfully work with someone who is partnered with somebody who has experienced sexual violence. And uh, just that there's that kind of bystander role is so complex, it's painful, it's confusing. We touched on it just now, the like, oh, maybe I won't say anything because I'm really scared. That is a, if we're like looking at what it means to be a bystander to violence where you didn't cause it and you didn't like directly experience it, this is the dilemma of being a bystander. How do I engage in this? And that also is is a part of this larger piece of work that I think it can be really helpful to even just understand sexual trauma in order to understand all the like psychological dilemma that comes up and emotional, spiritual dilemma that comes up just in relating to it, even if the person you're working with isn't the survivor. So those are kind of the last pieces I would say. And Mm. yeah. No, I, that's super important and I'm glad that you brought that in because it's analogous to kind of like adult children of alcoholics. There are certain ways that your psychology patterns to things around you and you may not have directly experienced that abuse, but you are patterning to, you know, it's all relational wounding. So you can have relational wounding relation to someone else's wounding. And I think it's really important to to name that. Is, is there anything in the context of that, like any tips around working with someone who may be in that position, aside from validating their experience as harm itself? Is there any other sort of things that have popped up in, in terms of working with those populations? You know, before I answer that question, just adult children of alcoholics, such a good example. It's so normalized to talk about how if your partner had an alcoholic parent, 
that that is going to affect the relationship and really affect all this ways, complex ways that you connect. And yet we are so afraid to talk about sexual harm and how it affects in a very, very deep way. Not just like things... I mean, a lot of people focus on like, okay, well, how has it affected your sex life? As opposed to like, how does it affect an argument that you have about the dishes? I mean, because it does. It's it's so pervasive in terms of the impact. So I think that's a beautiful kind of example that we don't feel as like ashamed, though there can be lots of shame, but uh, as much cultural shame that stops us from talking about those pieces. And yet this piece that we're talking about right now with sexual traumas, like just completely mirrors that. So to your other question... I think part of understanding sexual trauma and understanding how it plays out in the clinical relationship actually means that you are building the skills to really know about what happens when you relate to somebody who has experienced trauma. And from that place, you can also start to understand the people who you're working with clinically that have that experience. So for example, if I know that a dynamic that starts to form is one of us has to be the abuser and one of us has to be the perpetrator. And I could play out either one of those roles with this person who I'm working with who's experienced sexual trauma. It's reasonable to just take that understanding and, and look at it like when you're working with somebody, let's say, who's partnered with someone who's experienced sexual trauma, that that person might be experiencing either feeling like they're the abuser or the abused. And so I, I think there can actually be a lot of knowing about this by even just learning how to work with the, the trauma from a psychological place. And I'll also say, just so that people are totally clear on this, when I say that that sort of abuser, perpetrator, and, and victim dynamic plays out, there's a clinical reason for that. I'm not just like saying like, oh, and then, you know, someone just makes you feel this way. There's a reason for that, which is that it, there's a very unconscious communication happening that is helping the therapist to understand what has gone on in the trauma. So it's like through kind of like a very unconscious and embodied communication. I could go on forever about that, but I just want to clarify that I'm not just that I'm not just sort of like, oh, and all these terrible things happen. There's reasons for it and and we in learning how to work with it psychologically can actually make a lot of sense of why that happens. Well, yeah. And if practitioners really understand these dynamics and how they play out, then these can be threads that can be used to really deeply heal this person. If they're noticing, okay, here's this behavior pattern. Now I, I know how to behave in this way in response to the pattern. And that actually is a signpost or maybe a breadcrumb to understanding like what deeper healing is being called for. And I think that that's extremely important. Yeah, you know, in that book I mentioned earlier, which I just remember the authors are, it's Jody Messler-Davies and Mary Gail Frawley, that, that book about treating adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. One of the things that they say in that book that I think is really beautiful is, you know, this is really hard work. I mean, it is like the heavy lifting of healing to work with people who have severe trauma. And you are required to heal in that process. And you can get a lot of healing out of doing that work not in an extractive way where you're healing at the expense of someone else, but like there's just a lot of healing that can come through for the practitioner as well. Like I'm sure many people are like, ah, this is scary. Like, I don't know if I want to do this. And it can just be so meaningful and powerful. And that I think that's, I want to like name that piece too, that there's a lot of beauty in this work. A lot of beauty in this work. And I think a beautiful place to rest 
part one of the conversation with the optimism that this is really transformational work. For many of the practitioners getting into this work who've had their own healing, many of them, or who've witnessed this healing and the enormous impact it can have on communities and society at large, like this is profound work. And what I'm hearing over and over again in this conversation is train properly for it. And if you train properly for it, you'll be able to create that transformational healing. If you don't train properly for it, you may end up inhibiting that healing or worse, actually causing harm, which will be the subject of of part two of this conversation. Thank you. Amen. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please join the Psychedelic Therapy Facebook group to talk about it. You can also share it with your friends or leave a review on iTunes so more people can discover the show. The Psychedelic Therapy Podcast is presented by Maya, a platform designed to help psychedelic therapists manage and measure client journeys. You can head to mayahealth.com to learn more. The show is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.